Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Robin Maynard is a black feminist writer, grassroots community organizer, and intellectual based in Montreal. Her work has appeared in the Toronto Star, the Montreal Gazette, World Policy Journal, and Canadian Women's Studies Journal. In the fall of 2017, Fernwood Publishing released Maynard's book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, which is an astounding history of anti-black racism in Canada that has surprised and empowered citizens of this country to learn and discover more about the legacy of inequality, violence, and stigma directed at generations of black Canadians. Robin and I recently connected for a conversation about what motivated her to write this book. Part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts, this is the 379th episode of Creative Control, featuring author Robin Maynard, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Robin. How are you? I'm well, and how are you doing? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I, I first, uh, I, I usually begin these chats by asking people where in the world they are, and I begin this chat similarly. Where are you today? So I'm in Montreal, and I'm just about to go to New Brunswick to do a Black History Month there, and from there I'll be headed to Toronto. So. Oh, nice. So you're, you're busy. You're traveling. Yeah, I'm doing a little bit of a book tour part two this winter, so I'm doing a lot of events really pretty steadily up until April. Well, good for you. I mean, I, I, I'm not the first to do this, but I want to commend you for this book, uh, Policing Black Lives. It's been very impactful on me, and uh, I know that uh, the, the feeling is sort of widespread. So uh, for what it's worth, uh, thank you, and congratulations on the success of your book. Um, thanks a lot, and thanks for reading it. Yeah, it really means a lot. Um, I'd like to spread that thanks, too, I mean, to all the really sort of brilliant and really visible black activism in the, in the last few years that sort of forced this issue into the forefront, and I really think gotten us to a place where we're actually able to see a book like this um, 
you know, making it to a wider audience. So, yeah, thank you for that. You're and wel- thank you um, to all the folks that made this possible, too. You're welcome. And I want to speak to that that point you just raised, uh, because this book does seem particularly relevant right now. I'm curious what inspired you to take on this book as a project. What was it that motivated you to write this book? Sure. I mean, I've always been, you know, first and foremost, I think like I have a background in activism since I was a teenager. I've been involved, you know, doing work in the community sector, doing a lot of frontline work, um, you know, with youth that are often being criminalized, with often black women, with indigenous women. So I feel like really just a lot of my life experience and my work experience and my professional experience has really been in um, supporting people as they're coming up against um, institutions that, as we know, for black people uh, can be really sources of harm in their lives, whether that's, you know, negative experiences with the police, negative experiences with social workers, um, dealing with being incarcerated, with what happens when you lose your home after you go to prison or jail. So I really feel like I was coming at the book from a way of um, realizing that so much of what I was witnessing in my day-to-day life was actually really not being represented, you know, particularly in the media, but also in a lot of sort of popular representations of what Canada is and what it looks like. So I think I really come from, you know, a tradition of like of activist scholarship of really trying to to use my writing to bring attention to issues that I feel like were sometimes being underaddressed in broader society. Now, I mean, I think that some of us would comprehend why such issues would be underrepresented in broader society but can you elaborate upon this is something you uh, it's one of the major tenets if not the most uh, significant tenet of the book uh, in terms of underrepresented perspectives and why these things are underreported but can you elaborate upon your perspective on why such things are underrepresented in mainstream culture Sure. I mean, I think that particularly Canada has had, you know, the long history of this country. There's always really been a strong investment in representing Canada as this beacon of tolerance, of diversity. Um, And if you look at the actual conditions that black communities have been facing in this country, that really undoes that representation of Canada. So I feel that there's really been kind of a strong impetus to actually you know, hide these realities. And that's something, um, you know, that is actually represented as well, even if you look at the, connect, the collection of data, right? So we've, we have very little publicly accessible collection and release of data um, on the conditions of black communities. Like if, if you look to the fact that, for example, most cities don't actually have to report and collect and uh, publicly distribute, you know, race-based data surrounding police stops. Most of the information that we have, for example, on black populations in jails, we've actually had to, you know, people have done access to informations to make that information public. A lot of the information that we know, for example, even about the, you know, the crisis of carding in Toronto is just because of access to information that was done by reporters uh, like Jim Rankin through the Toronto Star, right? So that Mm -hmm. actually means, like when I say that that information is hidden, I I actually mean that quite literally in many, in many uh, spaces. So I think that that was sort of one of the major labors of this book was to really look at trying to bring together all this information that has been inaccessible to us um, as black folks and to the broader Canadian public in many ways. Yeah, but, um, yeah no, I, I mean, one of the things that astounds me about your book is on the one hand, you are, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount uh, about Canadian history uh, from this book, and it's a very well-cited book. I mean, every chapter 
you are citing some some other work uh, often and some other uh, academic or, or or activist who has compiled some of this information. Is that scholarship, if you will? Is that occurring on the margins? Is that something that's starting to enter institutions? Can you comment on that? Well, I think that like this is I'm really glad that you asked that question. I'm glad that you pointed that out because. I think that one of the things that's important to remember is that, you know, even though I mentioned, of course, that there's sort of been a lack of data in some ways, there's also been more than enough information, I would say, to paint a really damning portrait of the conditions faced by black Canadians. So you have so much brilliant scholarship, particularly by by black folks in Canada that have really been bringing these issues to light. Like I'm holding right now in my hands a book by Dion Brand, uh, Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. a history, it's just this oral history called No Burden to Carry, Narrative of Black Working Women in Ontario in the 1920s to 1950s. And she's done such beautiful work just actually recovering the stories of these black women that were undergoing, you know, extreme kinds of racial oppression, uh, segregation, you know, describing, for example, not being able to actually uh, live in the towns where they work because of informal sundown laws. So I think that um, she's only just one of really a really broad array of black scholars that have done an incredible job of actually bringing these issues out and bringing these stories out. And I think that the broader issue is that even though you have this sort of really great wealth of of knowledge that's been produced by black Canadian writers, it really has been marginalized. It hasn't necessarily made it onto curriculums. The things that people have unearthed has not necessarily made it, whether that's into the public school curriculum and even often at the university level, right? Mm-hmm. So even though you have, you know, you have slavery scholars, you have um, legal scholars like Barrington Walker that have really showed incredible kinds of racial discrimination faced by black communities throughout the 20th century. What we still have is when we learn about racism, we learn about, you know, Martin Luther King and the civil rights struggle in the United States and the things that black people have had to face, you know, abroad and internationally, right? But we never have this focus on what has actually happened right here. Yeah, I mean, I I attended the University of Guelph as an English student and many of my electives were uh, black history courses of some sort or another, and most of them that I took were taught by a professor here or at the time named uh, C.J. Munford, and he spent, uh, we spent uh, almost every class was about the Middle Passage and and how it tended to impact uh, African uh, well Africans who were brought to America to the Americas to Europe. We did not really delve into Canada's role in the slave trade, and I've seen a few people on Twitter, uh, talking about the book and, and being astounded, astounded that the slave trade occurred in Canada for 200 years, and myself included. It just never really occurred to me. And I, is it just the way we were taught? Because it's Canada, we were taught to look at our own country through rose-colored glasses, so to speak. And it's an astounding fact. Were you surprised by facts like these? Were you surprised in the course of doing research uh, on your book about what has actually occurred in this country? Absolutely. I mean, even though I think coming from the background that I'm coming from where I've witnessed horrific, um, you know, just horrific things that are black, that black communities are going through. I mean, I think as most most black folks, you know, in the country are not surprised, even if we are horrified by stories about carding. We know the pain in our communities of deportation, of harsh treatment in schools, um, of the fear of child welfare. But I think that really there's still if you look back to the historical conditions of black communities, um, as they've evolved, there was still a lot of surprises for me there. Um, I think just in terms of the really sort of acute harshness, like reading stories, for example, I found a story about an enslaved um, person whose gender wasn't released, um, who had actually run away 
uh, they, were, they were trying to, you know, seek fugitivity, trying to seek freedom, and they were actually punished. This is in Turbo, Nova Scotia, by actually being dragged to death mm-hmm. um, by a whiplash knotted through their earlobe, right? So this is just those little accounts like that, I think, that are still sort of shocking and piercing and, yeah, that you can't really get used to that, even though I was aware, for example, obviously, of the fact that slavery had existed in Canada. I think sometimes the brutality is something that still really has the capacity to shock me. Yes, I mean, it continues to shock. I, I do think it's important for these for these anecdotes, these depictions of what actually occurred to, to come out, but it is disturbing. I mean, are, are you from Canada originally? I am, yeah. Yeah, so... Born and raised. And so uh, in, in your studies, and you went to what, uh, what, what, uh, what level of uh, academics did you uh, reach, if I may ask? Um, I'm more of an independent scholar. I've done most of my work sort of on the sideline as I've worked uh, in in the community sector. So the work that I really did for this book was done outside um, of the academy and is something that I just did sort of as an independent project. Right, right. Um, And and so in your experience in academies, in in the institutions, were you at points aware that you weren't really being taught your own history or your cultural history uh, as it pertained to the country you lived in? I mean, absolutely. I attended McGill. And one thing I remember very much learning, um, because so much of my work was actually focused on race, on women, on black women, uh, that I literally learned, you know, nothing about about any of these sort of histories that I ended up really covering in my book. What was interesting was that I feel like I learned so much more in the kind of studies that I, that I have been doing just in my personal time outside um, outside of the university, and that is really where I found so much of that information. Mm-hmm. So I think it depends what institution you're attending, but absolutely I think we really need to understand that a lot of the issues facing Black Canadians, whether that's in the past or the present, are just really criminally underrepresented yeah. uh, in universities, in university curriculums. I, I, I've been asking people these question, this question, the next question, and it's a delicate one because it's something I've experienced myself, and it, it probably at least subconsciously, has motivated me to, uh, you know, investigate things uh, from a certain perspective. Did you, have you, and maybe the answer is obvious, have you experienced racism uh, to the point where you felt, uh, you know, marginalized, uh, felt that you you didn't have a voice uh, in in your country, in your city? Have Have you experienced that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, in one ways, I've been incredibly fortunate um, and, you know, some of that is due to things like, light, light, I, you know, I have lighter skin, which gives a certain privilege even within the black community. Um, I didn't grow up extremely poor or anything like that. Right. So I've been sort of fortunate to not actually experience some of the really, I think, the most harsh conditions that some black folks, that many black folks in Canada are facing. Mm-hmm. But I still have experienced, you know, racial profiling at the hands of the police. I've still experienced, you know, that really heightened surveillance um, that is part of being black and getting an education and going through schooling in Canada, right? So mm-hmm. I think that um, it's still very much something that has influenced me and my own life and my own perspective is really experiencing that, you know, that fear, that targeting um, that is really just part of, I think, the fundamental black experience in Canada. Right. So is it fair to say that that firsthand experience motivated, at least partially motivated you to write this book? Absolutely. That's definitely a part of it. And I mean, so much of it is really just also 
the people that I've met and worked with over the years, even as I was, you know, working on the book, I met Tamajiza Phillip, for example, who I describe um, her situation in my book, who had her arm broken by the Montreal police a few years ago. I actually met and got to know quite well Arlene Galone, who actually, um, you know, spent around six months in solitary confinement and is now actually suing Correctional Services Canada. I met the family of Pierre Coriolan, who was killed by the police um, just last summer. So it's really like meeting and knowing and loving um the black community and, and, and loving black people and being part of the black community that really, I think, has motivated me to really want to, you know, with a loving attention, really bring these stories to light. So not really only from my personal, my own life, but also through all the lives that have touched mine, mm-hmm. you know, over, I guess, my entire, you know, my childhood and my adult life. Right. Uh, and, and obviously this uh, informs your perspective on each of these cases. I mean, this could have happened to you. This could have happened to your family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I alluded to the fact that this book has been received rather positively and it has uh, surprised people and informed people. Have you had a negative reception to the book that you'd like to ad- address and, and characterize? I'm just curious what uh, kind of reception you've received. Sure. I mean, for the most part, the reception has been really positive. Um, you know, I've been touring around the country. I've gone to all kinds of cities in southwestern Ontario. I've gone to Halifax. I'm headed out to BC. And I think the reception, particularly within the Black community, has been really um, warm and grateful and thankful. And um, it's been, you know, I've actually gotten a lot of positive reviews in the media as well, which has been a surprise and really, really nice and has felt really good. Um, in terms of this reception of the book, I would say that the only negative represent, uh, um, reception I seem to be getting is through just sort of random hate mail, um, which is just part of the realities of being a black activist and being a writer, which is that, you know, you receive emails telling you to go back to Africa, calling you racial slurs, all kinds of things like that is definitely also part of the experience, um, you know, getting trolled on Twitter sometimes and things like that that are definitely unpleasant. But in the broader, in a broader way, I'd say that the book has really been well received um, in the places that really matter to me. So, do you do you? I, I often think such trolling and and such uh, you know obvious provocative forms of racist rhetoric are rooted in fear uh, of some kind. Is that your analysis as well? I mean, how I know I'm, I'm not asking you to uh, necessarily break down racism, but when you do, you have a perspective on that. Like, why do people? Why are people racist, Robin? I don't understand. Well, um, I can't really get into the psychology of why particular people choose uh, to troll. I don't. I don't know that much about that history. At least that's not something that I'm that I can speak to. Yeah. But I mean, I think if you look to why people are racist, that is a question that really I think was one of the questions of my book. It's not like really thinking about actually the origins of the kind of anti-black racism that we see in Canada. And that was why it was very important for me to actually trace the long legacy of slavery Mm -hmm. in this country that actually shows, you know, that black people really since the era of slavery have been treated as pathological, as criminal, as less than human, as uh, threatening, as dangerous, right? So those ideas, many of them have actually been carried forward um, by many state institutions that we often see them repeated in the media. We do see an erasure of the black experience in the ways that, you know, what children are learning at schools. So it seems that really the way the racism has been carried forward across centuries has gone unchallenged by most of our public institutions, if not actually perpetuated by those same institutions. So, of course, that would also create a society in which um, individuals um, 
also hold those racist sentiments, right? In, right. in a very strong way, right? So, right. you know, I, I write about the systemic level in terms of, for example, the way that black folks are being treated by law enforcement officials, right? But that actually, of course, also goes to the population, right? Like we have yeah. people that will also call the cops if they see a black person walking down the street in the suburbs because they think that they don't belong there, right? So yeah. that's not something I get into as much in the book, but I think that, you know, the racism within our society is something that is an absolutely essential part of how anti-black racism continues um, in Canada. Now, do you have a perspective on why Canadians generally look at racism, particularly anti-black racism, as a as an American phenomenon? Do you, do you have a sense of why we don't acknowledge our history? I mean, I think in recent years, and you make a point of this in your book, like there is a there, there has been an alignment between uh, movements like Black Lives Matter and the plight of indigenous people. Um, and in recent years, it seems that there is more um, scrutiny of Canada's relationship with indigenous people. I feel like your book is also trying to point the, out that th- there's also been this horrible legacy of anti-black racism in this country. But as I was saying, often Canadians don't see that they took it's they some still don't see uh their our treatment of indigenous people as an issue can you speak to maybe why that is is it just uh as you say suppression of information is it simply that we have a smugness about us like i i'm trying to pinpoint that myself and and i don't i think your book is addressing that but can you elaborate upon that or, or scrutinize that a little bit Sure. I mean, something people often ask me this question, and I think that one of the important parts of addressing that is actually thinking about how, I mean, historically, even if you look back to the way that Canadian media worked in the early 20th century, like, it, as I was saying, it really is kind of a big part of Canadian identity to point to American racism. And there is this sort of um, mythos that really seems to be part of the national identity here that says that um, racism, particularly anti-black racism, is not something that is Canadian. So I think it really goes to um, something that people don't want to accept, right? Because it's not as if we don't have, you know, reports about the police killing black community members, about racial profiling. This information is out there, but people often choose not to synthesize it. Or what they do is they actually choose to just dismiss and totally invalidate um, many of the things that black communities are, br- are bringing forward, right? Like I was just, for example, Googling something uh, about Black Lives Matter, and the first headline that came up under my Google search was the bullies of Black Lives Matter, which right. was a headline uh, by the Globe and Mail, right? So right. you often have this reversal of people acting as if somehow black activists are uh, a threat, whereas they're actually really representing, you know, a claim of very real forms of harm that are being experienced. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that you've gotten positive, uh, mostly positive reception in the mainstream media here. Does that surprise you, given the fact that you're scrutinizing the media as much as you are uh, state violence, like state institutions that, I guess, the media is complicit in this state violence, really, and yet they're responding positively to your book? I mean, it goes two ways, right? Like, the media isn't only just one monolithic institution, so I'd say that the media often has been part of sort of portraying black communities in a really negative light. But at the same time, obviously, I mean, I guess there is still a draw to investigative journalism, to things that are considered newsworthy. So I don't think that it's sort of an inherently, um, I don't know, I think that it can be mixed and it's possible to have, for the media to still sort of fundamentally be quite conservative, but still to have these little pockets, of course, of representation um, of things that are considered newsworthy. For example, I guess a book that addresses anti-black racism that in some ways is, um, is quite novel. We'll be right back after these messages. 
fascinating to me. As we're speaking, it is Black History Month, uh, and we are in a strange period in terms of information processing and mistrust of information and mistrust of history. Uh, do do you have any perspective on that? This notion that some people would just relegate a book like yours to the past. You know that this is not relevant today. Have you encountered that? Because I, we see this a lot in American media when people cite precedents. They're like, well, whatever. You know, that's the past. That's not what's happening now. We have to move past history, which I find troubling. Uh, have you encountered that? Um, I think that what I really tried to do is to make that impossible, both within the way that I wrote my book and also the way that I speak about my book when I'm doing these events, because, I mean, the whole point of the book, the subtitle of the book, right, is, um, you know, the title is Policing Black Lives, but the subtitle is State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. Yeah. So as much as I think it's really important for us, particularly in Canada, to actually look back to the legacy of slavery, of segregation and things like that, for me, it was the reason for doing so was so that we could actually better understand the present, right? And the crisis of the present, right? Um, which spans across the criminal justice system, the child welfare system, the schooling system, um, and the immigration system as well. So for me, it was really important that we absolutely can't lose that, that second part, which is actually, you know, the ongoing uh, dehumanization of black communities now and today. And the reason for me really invoking that history was to make the present more understandable to us, right? Like, I think that it's a lot easier, for example, to understand the phenomenon of racial profiling if we look to the fact that, you know, there was already a heightened surveillance of black people moving in public space because people thought, you know, they were suspected of being runaway slaves under slavery, right? Yeah. So it's actually through exploring those histories that we can better understand the way that black people continue to be um, seen and treated as criminal, um, as less than human today. Yeah, and but I do think that there's an equal force against that in in trying to negate the the fact that people are being dehumanized now by erasure of their history, erasure of people's uh, the institutional complicity in that dehumanization. I I feel like that's addressed in your book as well and and, and that's an important facet of your book. Yeah, I think that um, what that sort of erasure of history really, really does um, is allows it to sort of everything to be cast uh, as a surprise. Catherine McKittrick talks, uh, she's a, a really, really important black thinker based in Canada, talks about the idea of blackness as a surprise here. Yeah. And I think that what that does is that sort of misunderstanding of history allows there to be, you know, a headline after, for example, a black community member is killed that says black activists allege racism, but it doesn't actually go into the history that, of course, we've seen the you know, that black people have been way overrepresented in police killings and black community activists have been decrying that for 30 years, right? Yeah. Like, for example, in Montreal, Anthony Griffin was killed by the police 30 years ago. And at least and it was even since before that, um, you know, black communities have been talking about this. But we still have this idea that somehow it's a surprise and it's really given very no historical context or very little historical context right. in a lot of the way that we see these issues talked about. It's often seen as if it's somehow just this new issue, or maybe it's kind of like the United States, but you always just have this sort of decontextualization that doesn't actually give the broader patterns. Yeah. Absolutely so. Yeah. I mean, we, we're we also in a period where social social media, the internet has really in, like shone a light on these issues and also you know, we are all confronted with video of police brutality, of of police violence that's documented, but these these things don't always seem to result in convictions or 
actual change within the police force. Do you have any comment on that? Because it does seem like we're more, we're hyper aware. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What's going on? And it seems like you're less likely to get away with such things, but... At the same time, people continue to get away with such things. Yeah, I mean, I think that we we can't confuse visibility for justice, right? Because in many ways, like if I was, I did a lot of sort of unearthing of the history of, you know, the police killings, for example, in the 1980s that black communities were responding to. And there was this heightened visibility then, like you even see, you know, the activism of the Black Action Defense Committee, who were a really mobilized um, black activist group in Toronto, in the 1980s and 90s, actually mobilizing to have an independent oversight body yeah. because of these police killings that were going unpunished. But then what you see, of course, that actually led to the creation of the Special, Inve- the Special Investigations Unit, otherwise known as the SIU. Yeah. But then what you see is that although they actually managed to fight and win for independent oversight, um, what the state actually did was they ended up making the SIU a force that was, of course, largely made up of ex-police officers who actually failed you know, to make sort of any real transformative change within the system of oversight. And we see a really similar thing in Montreal in the last few years. Um, Myself and many others, including um, Bridget Tolley, who's an incredible um, Indigenous activist whose mother was killed by the the Quebec police in 2001, have actually been pushing for an independent oversight body in Montreal. And they finally announced that one would actually exist sort of, sorry, in Quebec. They actually finally sort of won this, uh, this fight. And again, what's called the Bureau d'Enquête Indépendante, the BEI, mm-hmm. is again staffed largely by ex-police officers. So what you see um, is that you don't, just because there is visibility on an issue, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, it won't sort of be co-opted um, in a way that sort of leads, leaves these institutions fundamentally unchanged. Well, I think back to the early 90s when I was a younger person in my teens. And, you know, like a lot of Canadians, uh, particularly those of us who live in kind of border cities, I was really uh, obsessed and I absorbed a lot more American culture in some ways than I probably did Canadian culture. And I remember the Rodney King verdict. uh, And I remember thinking they think they're telling us not to believe our eyes. We all saw the video of the the encounter, there was no doubt about it. We all saw it. And yet, somehow, uh, a court system found those police officers not guilty. And that's something we're continuing to experience. Like, you know, in, in there's a chapter in your book where you just outline uh, cases where women, in particular, were assaulted by police officers. And the majority of them 
uh, or rather, I guess in, the, in most cases, the the police officers weren't really charged for it. It was, you know, someone's word against others. But as I say, we're just in an age where we see exactly what's going on, and it's still not really treated like there's not justice there, and that has a psychological impact on on me, on I think on people. I assume in the African Canadian community, would you agree? Absolutely. I think, if anything, it just continues to be made more and more clear that for black populations, for black communities in Canada, there isn't justice, right? Like just last week, uh, the family of Pierre Cotillon, who was a black man who was uh, in his 50s, who was killed in the midst of a mental health crisis just this summer, the the family actually just released a horrifying video uh, that shows part of the police interaction in which, um, you know, they were called... um, you know, to come in because this person needed support. And instead you see, you know, within the video and in the descriptions of the witnesses that he was first tasered and then shot with rubber bullets and then shot with live ammunition, right? Yeah. In, in in his own home. Yeah. So I think what this kind of, what this really creates is a climate, you know, of fear of many state institutions and a fear that is really valid and a rational response mm-hmm. that we know that, for example, if one of our loved ones is having a mental health crisis, that it could actually be... Um, more harmful to actually call for help because we know that what are supposed to be public services that are supposed to be done to, uh, designed to protect the public are not actually designed for us and are actually, you know, that are actually that have historically and today continue to be sources of harm. Yeah, you know, support, it, it, so. it, it, there are myriad examples in your book of police looking for any excuse to use excessive force, and if someone's having a mental health episode, they're they're very they're very free. They they have they seem to have the autonomy to just as you say, uh, you know, perpetuate violence against them. Um, and this leads me to a question about um, about mental health and stress. Do you think there's enough scrutiny of the impact of anti-black racism on anxiety, on mental health uh, issues? I, it's something that's been sort of fascinating me lately, and I don't think there's an... I, I believe you allude to it in your book, but do you think there's enough discussion of the, the impact like on of racism on mental health? I would say that there is some discussion of that, but still not enough. I actually, just last weekend, I was speaking on a panel at a what was called the Ubuntu Community Fair in Kitchener-Waterloo that was held, you know, for black communities in Kitchener-Waterloo in Kitchener Waterloo in that area. And the focus of that day actually was really on race and health. And that's something that I think we need to see more of that really tells us, you know, that not only is racism harmful in terms of obviously it's, as Mishisa Philip learned, having your arms broken by the police is is harmful. But I think that what we don't have enough focus on is actually on the way that it actually not only causes anxiety and stress, but also can actually be related to things like diabetes and cancer and high blood pressure, yeah. that actually racism has these effects that are felt you know, in our bodies, in our hearts, um, in our minds, right? That I think that we don't really, I still think that that's something that we really need to explore more broadly as a society, though I'd say we're starting to turn towards that. Yeah, I I just feel like we tend to, particularly with celebrities, like when Kanye West was having his mental health issues in public, I feel like people were mocking him for it because he's a bit of a divisive figure, but I couldn't help but just think of the pressure he's under uh, and that a lot of African or, or black artists, black black public figures are under. I mean, it must be, it's just got to be overwhelming. I, 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 and I don't think we take it into consideration, like what they're, what they're going through. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we really need to understand, you know, particularly like if you think about what black teenagers are going through when, you know, they're experiencing often really negative treatment 
in their schools where they're being streamed into, you know, like lower, lower tracks when they're often being targeted with suspensions and expulsions at really, really high rates compared to white youth. And they're also experiencing that at the level of the police. And if they don't have their citizenship um, or they have precarious citizenship, then they also have to worry about, you know, the fear of not only being carded, but of actually being deported. I think that we don't think about what it actually is like to go through life with those multiple stressors yeah. all the time, right? And the impact that that has on your ability to feel um, to feel healthy and to, you know, to really have your mental health be something that's under control. And if you even look to the sort of more broad uh, ways that you actually can see mental health being um, under threat is that, of course, um, incarceration and things like solitary confinement, which black communities are really disproportionately impacted by, actually cause and exacerbate mental health issues. Similarly, immigration detention, um, and Canada has no cap on immigration detention, right? So we see sometimes cases of black and other racialized migrants in immigration detention centers for like 10 years right. at, at, at the worst moments, right? And the impacts of that on mental health have been studied and are, are shown to be really, really harmful, right? So it's just sort of this broad array of... Um, and even just living with the fear that that could happen to you is something that, of course, is also so scary and is also harmful to mental health and mental well-being, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, well, you analyze various stigmas that are uh, at least uh, partially connected to racism. But there's also, just so people know, you know, you get into the over-sexualization, you get into uh, gender issues. It's it's quite a remarkable overview and and and, and an analysis of the intersectional aspects of this issue and 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 I I hope that people will read this book. Do you have particular hopes and dreams for what this book can accomplish? Do you do you have a, a sense of what you hope people take away from it because for me as I've mentioned a few times and I think others have said it as well, it's been an eye-opening experience reading your book. What do you hope to this book accomplishes going forward? Yeah, that's an important question. I mean, I think that one of the things I'm really loving about what the book's been able to do so far is to really sort of spark, in many ways, a national conversation. Um, because, you know, the book just hit a bestseller list and also because I'm actually bringing the book to so many cities where often I actually, you know, it's not just me giving a book talk, but most of the time it's also being linked with local black activists in terms of what they're doing in their communities. So I think, you know, for black and racialized communities, it's really being used um, as a way of further addressing, you know, that where we are today and also where we're going in terms of activism and mobilization. Yeah, and yeah. I think that hopefully, you know, for broader Canadian society, it is something of a wake-up call that really helps people understand why it's important for them to support movements like Black Lives Matter or local black mobilizing within uh, wherever they happen to be to be located, right? I hope that yeah. it really can help um, people understand why. Um, why there's this growing push for justice for black communities and to really actually, you know, instead of dismissing or ignoring, to actually support those claims. Now, you've written, uh, I don't want to mischaracterize your book, so please correct me, but I, I view this book as an excessively written textbook of sorts. Is that is that incorrect? <laughs> um, in some ways, I would say it's a textbook in that it really does cover, I mean, 400 years of histories, five state institutions, um, you know, it takes really, it, took, it was really important for me to spend a lot of time focusing on the realities of black women, black cis and trans and gender nonconforming women. Yeah. Um, I think it was really important to me to try to make it as thorough as I possibly could. Right. So and, I guess, and under, you know, three, uh, under, ways, under 300 pages as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> so somewhat of an epic undertaking. Absolutely. But yeah. it was also really important for me to write the book in a way that was accessibly written. Right. I yeah. wanted it to be something that, you know, could be used, you know, in a graduate course at university if people were so interested. And it has been sort of widely adopted at this point, which is which is really great. But I also want it to be something that a 16 year old could read and understand because it was really important for me. I mean, these issues impact all of us. Right. So I really wanted people coming from different walks of life to be able to, to, to read the text and to find the text accessible. Yeah, uh, you say it's already been widely embraced. So is it this book is now entering curriculums across the um, country? Yeah, it's definitely people have let me know that they're teaching it sometimes in graduate seminars and undergraduate seminars in their college courses. Um, I think I'm going to go actually speak with uh, this one college class that actually the youth had read the book in its entirety, and then I'm going to go in and I'm going to speak with all of them about it. Um, people have taken it up in some ways, doing these little book clubs as well. So, oh, nice! I would say that yeah, people it seems to be it seems to be getting out there. That's amazing. Well, I, I'm very happy to spread the word about it here as well. Um, what is next for you? <laughs> I know, like this book only came out in October, right? Yeah, of 2017. So people are still processing the book. You're still promoting it. You say second book tour, but. Uh, you know, books, no pun intended, have a long shelf life, so hopefully you can keep spreading the word about it. But do you have a follow-up plan at this point? Because you have obviously made, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that this book has uh, really raised your profile. Uh, do you have a, a plan for what's next? I mean, I'm trying to use, like, you know, you mentioned that profile, and I'm trying to sort of use that, which I have to, for example, I mean, I just... I want to get more word out about the, the Cody Olang family that's actually doing a fundraiser uh, because they're trying to sue the Montreal police um, mm -hmm. who are responsible, or the city, because of the Montreal police killing Pierre Cody Olang. So I want to make sure to really, you know, continue being an activist yeah. and continue to being accountable to my community and to use the sort of larger platform that I have now to uplift the different local organizing that's happening across the country. Yeah. Um, on a more personal level, I mean, I think after this last, this next bout of being, you know, doing sort of, a really intensive amount of speaking. I would just like to spend some time with my family. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, spend a few months hanging out with my son, who's two. And yeah, but I think that, you know, the book's not going anywhere, so I'll still be happy to, I think, sort of just do a more slow-paced version if people are still interested in hearing about it as the years go on. And, you know, thinking about maybe what I'll be writing about next as well is something that's that's on my mind, but I'm not quite there yet. Yeah, I, I didn't expect you to have a full-fledged plan. I mean, did the, the success of the book take you by surprise at all? Uh, yes, completely. I, when I was writing the book, I was imagining that maybe 80 people would read it, <laughs> um, half of whom would be my friends. Right. So I was really surprised. I think also because of so much of what I was doing was going through all this awesome, these awesome books by Black Canadian writers mm -hmm. that you never, you know, that um, just because of the erasure, I think, of so much black scholarship that like um, are really difficult to access, for example, in bookstores and things like that. So that's again why I think I really am crediting the way that the book's being received, not to me, but to this massive inter intervention in um, black activism in the last few years that's really brought um, this issue into the forefront. That's actually now we're seeing sort of the recovery of so many of these other brilliant, brilliant black texts like The Hanging of Angelique. Um, yeah. Like Ronaldo Walcott's Black Like Who, and I'm so glad that I think it's, you know, it's really not just my book, but we're really seeing a black resurgence, right? So yeah, I no. think that that more broadly is something that um, is happening for a lot of black writers right now, and I think it's really important, and it's it's time, right? So Yeah, I, 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 I gather you see uh, certain aspects of certain movements, certain, you see, you're seeing a little bit of progress at this point. Is that fair to say that you have hope? 
Um, that's that's a that's a big question for me. <laughs> right. I think that we always have to have hope. I think that you know, I think about the work that my ancestors were you know were part of in terms of like the abolition of slavery and things like that. So I think we need to remember sometimes when we just continue to be disappointed by the fact that you know I'm still fighting the same fight against police violence that literally 30 years ago black people in Montreal are fighting. It's really easy to get discouraged, but I really try to think of uh, Angela Davis actually is somebody that's helped me really think this through because she really says we need to think about it in terms of three generations, yeah. right? And think about the kinds of social justice struggles that we're seeing now and what that could hopefully accomplish for three generations from now. So when I think about it in that broader way, I try to, that sort of helps me guide myself. But, you know, at the same time, we're in a really frightening time when we're not necessarily seeing the kind of transformations that we need to see in terms of climate change, in terms of racial capitalism, in terms of just the ongoing dehumanization um, that's going still largely unchecked, right? So I think, yeah, there's many ways of thinking about the future. And I try to stay hopeful, but also I try to stay grounded in the very real reality that unless things change in a very major way, um, we're not going to achieve the kind of justice that we need, um, at least within my time. So that's sort of what drives me to keep going. I, I know this is it could uh, uh, elicit a long answer, but I, I do, because you you mentioned this, do you, I think of Trump, I think of the rise of his ilk in America. I've talked to a few people about this uh, who have different perspectives on what, how racism is more overt under this regime and whether that's healthy or not. Uh, I, and in one person, uh, and I've alluded to this a few times on my program because I interviewed Sashir Zameda, the comedian, and she made this point that it's this is the best thing that could happen because the Band-Aid covering racism is off. And that's the only way for this scar to really heal is for everyone to confront the fact that people think this way. What's your take on that? Because it's very uncomfortable. Uh, I, I have trouble watching television or the news with my children right now, and I, they don't uh, because they're too young. But you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's disconcerting, but is there a healthy offshoot of all this overt racism uh that that so people can actually confront what's what exists in both uh, america and canada i mean i wouldn't say that there's really anything positive that i can see about the emboldening and the sort of retrenchment of power in very like open white supremacist open white supremacist expressions <laughs> um and ideas right i think that that's something that even if you just look to like on the ground in terms of the intense rise in hate crimes <laughs> Um, yeah. I think that that's something that we just need to see as like harmful and dangerous. Yes. I do think that what you're pointing to in another way, though, is that it also gives this possibility, you know, when those ideas are out in the open, of course, of us still really trying to uh, both like raise awareness of the harms of that and to actually really create, you know, a counter movement to that. But again, I wouldn't say um, because I think that often still what happens is you see people see something like the rise of Trump and it's seen people are saying, oh, this isn't normal. We need to go back to normal. But what we need to remember is that before Trump, I mean, Black Lives Matter in the United States was actually forged under Obama, yeah, right? Like yeah. Obama, like the amounts of deportations, the kind of police violence that we're seeing, that we were seeing just expressed in a different way and sort of hidden under a benevolent um, face similarly to the way we see Justin Trudeau in Canada. I yes, just think we need exactly. to remember that white supremacy is articulated yeah. in different ways, right. right? So I think that while people often are reacting really negatively to the open expressions of racial hatred, 
um, that you see, you know, with the Trump administration, they're far more comfortable with um, those same structural kinds of violence that have been, you know, disproportionately harming black communities and indigenous communities for, for centuries, as long as they're not expressed openly. So I think what is sort of the goal of what we need to do um, in the left more broadly, within black organizing, um, within racial social justice movements, is to make both of those things intolerable. Yeah. Right. To make the open expression of racial hatred intolerable, but also actually to be to make um, a society based, um, you know, in really disproportionate streaming um, of in white supremacy, um, in anti-blackness and ongoing genocide, for example, toward indigenous communities. We need to make that intolerable as well. Yes. Right. So that really yeah. needs to be our focus is to make both expressions of white supremacist societies um, unacceptable for us. That's well said. I appreciate your answer. Uh, Robin, where can people learn more about this book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, and, and more about you, I suppose, as well? Um, people can visit my website if they're interested. It's www.robinmaynard.com. It's updated relatively often. <laughs> sure. I can relate to that, the relative updates. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's uh, hard to yeah. update everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I would say that that's sort of the place where most of, you know, information around the book, information around me, um, speaking events and things like that can be found. Okay. You can also go to Fernwood's website where you can read about my book. You can also read about a lot of really other important books that are, um, that are coming out. Yes. The and that have been released. So I think that's another good place. Fernwood Publishing, um, .ca. Yeah. Okay. Well, Robin, I appreciate... Oh, and sorry. Uh, oh, I just go. want to also mention um, I tweet at, at Policing Black. So if you, you want to follow me on Twitter. And, and you, you say there have been some... Unpl- I'm 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 getting kind of sick of Twitter uh, just because of the trolling. Uh, and again, you put out a book like this, and you alluded to this earlier. It it must be trying, but you're hanging in there. You're dealing with, you deal with the the, the fools, and you deal with the praise equally, I suppose. Yeah, I just try not to let the, you know, not to let the the sort of hater side of social media get me down. Okay. Um, I know, I respect however people choose to deal with that, including people that decide not to engage with social media. But for now, I've found it something that I still sort of enjoy the way that we're, I'm able to sort of interact with people well beyond, you know, Montreal, well beyond, even well beyond Canada, right? So I find it still somewhat useful of a tool and also just really helpful in getting the word out there. So, Yeah, we've talked about the, this, the book's impact in Canada. Is it resonating around the world? Are you, we, we talked about how it's being embraced and, and adding to curriculums. Do you, do you see it uh, having a place in particularly American curriculums who might, might be interested in it? I don't know about curriculums. Um, I mean, that actually, like, I'm not sure. It would depend, <laughs> I think, uh, on if there's interest, you know, in looking at this in other regions. So I guess for people that are interested in the African diaspora or the, in Canadian studies, I mean, that's a possibility. I've definitely been doing several events in the United States. So I was there, I was in New York and Boston and where else was I? Um, Baltimore. Oh, okay. This, this last fall. And I'm going to be headed up to California and possibly Boston again this winter um, for a few events. Um, yeah, like I got to speak with Kimberly Crenshaw and Beth Ritchie and many other um, black feminist thinkers in the United States. So, I mean, I yeah, I hope that sort of that conversation keeps going because nice. I think that's really interesting to think about, you know, anti-blackness in a way that's more of a global issue, right? So this issue isn't really just about Canada, but we see, of course, similar iterations in the United States, 
in Europe, in the United Kingdom, for example, right? So I just think that um, it's really interesting to sort of bring this into a broader, more global conversation around um, how anti-blackness sort of iterates itself differently in different countries. And are you seeing this uh, expression working in pop culture to any positive effect, like uh, musically, uh, television, you know, whatever film? Do you feel like these issues are being represented uh, well enough or in an outspoken enough manner? I mean, I was speaking a little bit about a black resurgence, and I think that, um, you know, it's not just from an activist uh, perspective, right? But we're also seeing, I think, a really, a really cool and exciting resurgence in, you know, black uh, cultural production, right? I think that the the level of excitement and these fundraisers that have been uh, created to make sure that black youth could go see Black Panther is something that that is significant, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we're seeing a lot more, even just this sort of like black girl ma- magic hashtag. Like, I think we're seeing a lot of you know, celebration of black cultural expression, of sort of the brilliance um, of black uh, creative expression as well that I find, you know, it makes it a really exciting time to be alive sort of culturally, right? So Yeah, I mean, the best film of last year, as far as I could tell, was Get Out, which uh, just I found haunting and troubling and moving. Yeah, and Moonlight the year before that, Yes, right, it, right so. of course. Yeah, there's something going on, and I... Again, I know it's hard, but I'm trying to stay hopeful. Um, in any case, uh, again, for people listening, the book is Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. Go to robinmaynard.com or fernwoodpublishing.ca for more information. Robin, I appreciate all of your time today and for writing this book, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you so much, and thanks a lot for having me on the show. Special thanks again to Robin Maynard for appearing on this, the 379th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on virtually every podcast platform there is. Please seek out the show on the platform of your choice and subscribe to uh, the ep- subscribe to the show, download episodes of the show, rate and review the uh, show positively. That all helps. Uh, thank you for doing that. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for or you want to learn more about me or sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. That's V-I-S-H. K-H-A-N-N-A dot com. You can like Creative Control with Vishkana on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Vishcreative, creative with a K, or follow me at Vishkana, Kana also with a K. You can also listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Please also visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep the podcast version of this show going. I'd like to once again thank all my uh, sponsors, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts, among others. Thank you for your support of the show, and thank you again for listening to the program. And uh, again, I hope uh, you will spread the word about it and let people know. And uh, that's all I have to say for now. Thanks again to Robin Maynard. Pick up her book, Policing Black Lives. It's remarkable. And I will talk to you very soon. Goodbye for now.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.